When I was in grad school, I had a part-time job at the bar. It was a bar in the basement of one of the dorms there at the Princeton Graduate College. My wife teases me. She tells people I was a bouncer when I was in grad school. But my job was to check the student IDs for people when they came from this larger room in the basement to get into the smaller room, which was where the bar was. I had this little table where I sat outside that door, and my job was simply to check IDs, make sure it said Princeton Graduate College so they could come through the door. But I sat at this table for four-hour shifts from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m., and across the table from where I sat, there was always an empty chair sitting there. And as you might imagine, people hanging out around the bar, that chair would always be filled by people wanting to hang out, wanting to engage. And I noticed something over the years when I had that job. I would be talking with people, we'd talk about what they're studying, things like ancient literature or history or physics or whatever, people getting PhDs and all these things. And the conversation would turn to, well, Nathan, what are you studying? And I would say, I'm studying to be a pastor. Now, usually one of two things would happen when I said that. It was pretty much a binary response. It was either, well, got to go, and they would be gone. Or there was a lot of interest and attraction. It was either attraction or repulsion, really. There were very few neutral responses when people knew that I was all about Jesus. And, you know, I shouldn't be surprised by that because... It's always been that way. Even way back in the book of Acts, which is what we're studying this whole summer, we see there's basically a binary response to the name of Jesus, to the movement of the early Christ followers. You either considered it your only source of power in this world, your identity, the thing that opened doors for you in the case of tonight's story, opening up prison doors, or like the counsel that we see in tonight's story, you wanted to just shut it out, get rid of it, shut the door on it. To some people, the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus is our open door. To other people, we wanna just snuff it out and shut the door on it. That's what we see playing out in the book of Acts. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this. Some people are out in the temple courts, Peter and John and the apostles, and they're healing in Jesus' name. And then the council, the people in power, they keep throwing them back into prison every time they do that. They tell them, you can't do that anymore. They're trying to snuff out the name of Jesus, but they come back out and they heal people in Jesus' name. You know, like last Sunday night, those healings that took place right here in this room in Jesus' name. Can you imagine if that happened and suddenly the police walked through the door and threw us in jail for that? That's what was happening in Jerusalem in the first century. So Peter and John, they've just healed another person, and that's where our story picks up tonight in verse 17. And the council, the high priest of the council, let's find out what he does, how he responds to this, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, An angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. It's an amazing miracle that takes place. 
I find it interesting, the angel could have opened up the prison doors and said, all right guys, now sneak off to Galilee again where you'll be safe from this council of high priests and other leaders who want to arrest you again. No, the angel says, go back out there, right? And what happens? Well, look in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. So here they are, back in trouble again. We've been using this word council. There's another word for this governing group of men in this time period. It's called the Sanhedrin. I really want you to picture this. So I actually brought an artist's rendering of what the Sanhedrin would have looked like. We obviously don't have photos or videos from the time of Acts, but this is an artist's rendering. Do you see, this, would, this was a, one of the rooms in the temple. And on the left-hand side, you have the 35 leaders of the Sadducees. On the right-hand side, you have the 35 leaders of the Pharisees. And then the appointed high priest is literally sitting on a throne in the middle. You see that? And right before him, that dark figure before him is what they call the accused. So this is Peter and John. After they're healing in the name of Jesus, they get hauled out in front of the council, in front of the Sanhedrin, who has them in all kinds of trouble. Now, the Sanhedrin, according to the law, according to Torah, they could do anything they wanted with people who broke the law, except for one thing. They weren't allowed to sentence somebody to death. To sentence somebody to death, they would turn the person over to the Romans, and the Romans would crucify them. It's exactly what happened in the case of Jesus. But here, this is the tonight's story, Acts chapter 5. This is what it would have looked like. I want you to picture it, because we're going to Think about this and how it might even apply to our lives, a situation like this. So this is Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin in all kinds of trouble. The Sanhedrin trying to snuff out this Jesus movement that's sweeping the streets of Jerusalem. And as I saw in my graduate college bar experience and what we see illustrated here is that there really are two ways of responding to the Jesus movement. You're either like Peter and John and you stand up and say, he's my only hope, he opens the prison doors for me. Or you're like the Sanhedrin with all of their power structures, all of their mechanisms of control over society who want to just snuff him out and get rid of him. In fact, the Apostle Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, put it this way. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see that? The very same word. The word of the cross to one group of people is folly. You want to get rid of it. It's embarrassing. Get it off our streets. But to another group of people, it's the power of God. This is what we see playing out in Acts chapter 5, exactly what Paul says. The word of the cross, the gospel, the name of Jesus, to the Sanhedrin, to the power structure, it's folly. Let's look at what they were saying. Verse 27 once again. When they had brought them, that's the apostles, they set them before the council or the Sanhedrin, and the high priest, picture the one on that throne, questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice something with me in this statement from the high priest. He can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. We strictly told you to stop teaching in this name. And now you want to bring this man's blood upon He's talking about Jesus there. He can't even utter the name of Jesus. He's trying so hard to shut the door on this folly that is the Jesus movement. Do you see the, the, the power structure of the Sanhedrin? If you think about it, the people who want to dismiss or get rid of the name and the power of Jesus are the people like the high priest, like the Sanhedrin, who have the most to lose. There was an uprising happening in Jerusalem. The name of Jesus was on everybody's lips. There were healings taking place in the name of Jesus. And these guys who thought of themselves as in control suddenly were a bit out of control. They set the tone for all religious activities in Jerusalem. And now look, there's this disruption happening. That's a word we use a lot these days in economics. You know, such and such an industry is a disruptive Force. It's breaking up the way things used to be. Jesus was disruptive to the Sanhedrin. Now, whenever I read a story like this in Scripture, I like to ask myself, okay, who am I in the story? If I was there that day, who, who would I have been? And usually my first knee-jerk reaction is, you know, I want to be the hero. I want to be like the center of the story. I feel like we all kind of do that a little bit when we read the scripture, like, I'm just like Peter. I need to speak truth to power, right? I'm the Christ follower. But if I'm a little bit more honest with myself, I realize that on some days, I have more in common with the Sanhedrin than I do with Peter. You know, I kind of like my position, my systems of control and power, and when I realize, when I really think about Jesus, I realize he's a disruptor, even of my own control mechanisms, my own authority structures in my own life. If I really let Jesus have his way, he'd probably mess up my control structures. I might be sitting in the seat of the Sanhedrin if I was there that day. I don't know. It might even be worse than that. As I really reflected on this passage, as I really looked into my own heart, I realized I have a, I have a whole Sanhedrin in my heart. I have a control structure set up in my heart. I like to feel like I'm in control. I see a couple of heads nodding around the room. I think maybe many of us have this inside of us. And if we really were to say the name of Jesus, the movement of Jesus, the power of Jesus can come into my heart and have its way, we'd have, to, we'd have to fire our inner Sanhedrin. We'd have to get all that power structure off the throne of our hearts and let Jesus take his position on the throne of our hearts. 
That's what Peter and John and the apostles were doing. Let's read about their little speech that they give to this Sanhedrin. I really want you to picture this now. Picture Peter and the apostles standing there in trouble, just been broken out of prison, and now they've been thrust in front of the Sanhedrin again. These guys with all the power, power to condemn them, power to turn them over to the Romans to kill them if they wanted to. And look what Peter says. Look with me at verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's a pretty bold opening statement to the Sanhedrin, don't you think? These guys in all of their splendor, all of their authority. Here's Peter. What he should have done is said, yes, yes, yes. Good point. Thank you, thank you. He says, we're going to obey somebody higher up than you guys. That's what he starts off by saying in verse 29. Then he says in verse 30, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, guys, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. It occurred to me as I was studying the passage this week, there's probably a number of men on that council who were there when Jesus was brought before them. The same group of people that had not that much time has passed. And Peter is looking at these guys and he's basically saying to them in this verse, you guys have made a huge mistake. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, you know, the one that, that you turned over to the Romans to be killed? That was our Messiah. He's not done with his speech yet. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. I want to stop halfway through that verse. There's a lot to unpack there. God exalted him at his right hand. You know, in the ancient world, that phrase meant something. People knew exactly what that meant. We don't use that phrase that often, at the right hand of. But in the ancient world, that meant something. If there was a king, and if the king had someone at his right hand, everybody would know what that means. That would mean that this person at his right hand would have equal authority with him. See what Peter's saying? You know where Jesus is now, the one you guys put on the cross? He's at the right hand of the Father. And you know what? I love this phrase. It says, as leader and Savior. Leader and Savior. Normally we hear Lord and Savior, don't we? Lord and Savior. Jesus, Lord and Savior. Peter says, leader and Savior. He says this to a group, to a panel, to a Sanhedrin of supposed leaders. Now you guys think you're the leaders, huh? You killed the real leader. Well, now he's at the right hand of the Father, leading and saving. And then it goes on from there to say, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What Peter is saying here is there's only one being in the whole universe, the Sanhedrin of all known this, who's able to forgive sins. Who's that? God. He's saying the one you guys killed is right now in his rightful position in the universe at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he's doing from there? He's forgiving sins. Because that's what his job is. Because he's God. And he wraps up his speech with verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things. We've seen it all. 
And so is the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. (laughs) I can just almost feel the tension in the room before the Sanhedrin. In fact, in verse 33, which we didn't read tonight, in verse 33 it says this, when the Sanhedrin had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Yeah, I'll bet they did. You know, just this past week, I had an interesting experience. I mentioned some days I'm like the Sanhedrin. Some days I'm like Peter. I had a Peter moment this past week. I was asked to speak at this thing in town over in Greenwich. And it was a thing to honor somebody in the congregation. And I knew that I had been asked to speak. I didn't know who else was going to be there to speak. When I got there, I realized the United States senator from Connecticut was there. The United States congressman from Connecticut was there. The mayor, the chief of police, all the, basically the pantheon of power in our state was there and me. (laughs) And I thought, this is hilarious. And I had this word on my heart that I was going to share. This was not a Christian event at all. But I had this word on my heart to honor this guy. And it was going to be all about the word, the authority and the power and the influence of the word. And I was sitting there right before I was about to stand up in front of this pantheon of power. And I kind of felt this bad feeling come over me. And I was like, Lord, should I not share about your word in, in this room? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, no, you should still share it. So I stood up. They gave me five minutes. I took all five. And I spoke about the word. And it felt good. I I was connecting with people. I was looking people right in the eye. I saw a lot of nodding heads. People were appreciating it. But then I sat down in my seat. And this really loud, blaring voice came from inside my head. And it said, you idiot, you shouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? And I'll be honest with you, it really sucked. And I suddenly felt really stupid and small. And then I realized right then, that's not the Lord. That's the enemy of my soul. I just had a Peter moment, you know, speaking words of the gospel, and the enemy hated that. So he got in my head and made me feel about this big. And I struggled actually the whole night. I woke up three times during the night feeling like an idiot. I texted Joanne the next morning and she said, open your Bible. She helped me reclaim some feeling of affirmation from my father. So there's this tension, this real battle going on, this binary response to the name of Jesus. People either want to shut it out or let it be the door that opens to eternal life. So how did this tension get resolved here? The Sanhedrin wants to kill these guys. They want to do to them what the enemy wanted to do to me this past week. And this one man, this very wise man, he's one of my favorite figures in the whole Bible. He resolves the the tension. And I want to, I'm just going to read this and I'll conclude with this. Because I want you to go back to that. If you are like me and you have a Sanhedrin in your heart and there's a battle for control, 
And Jesus wants to come in and disrupt it all. If you don't know how to resolve that tension, let's look at Gamaliel and see what happens. So these guys are ready to kill Peter. Here's what it says in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council, one of the members of the Sanhedrin now, stands up named Gamaliel. A teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Let's just settle down for a minute. Put the guys outside. Verse 35, he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all the people who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took Gamaliel's advice. God bless you, Gamaliel. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Do you have a Sanhedrin in your heart? I know I do. Maybe you need to do this every day, but right now I would just invite you to let Jesus come in and disrupt the whole thing. Because if you oppose that, you might be opposing God. But if you open the door, you will be opening the door to a whole new life that leads unto eternity. A life given by Jesus, the one who is the highest authority in the whole universe. Amen.